Former swimmers looking for a way to give back to the sport in New York City? Reach out to Imagine Swimming. Since 2002, they've been the premier learn-to-swim school with international and American staff, including Olympic champions Anthony Irvin and Eric Vent. Imagine Swimming offers infant to adult classes, plus competitive team options, water polo, and an artistic swimming club coached by an Olympic silver medalist. With flagship locations across Manhattan and Brooklyn, Imagine is always looking for the next generation of swimmers to pass on their knowledge and passion for swimming. Tired of settling for less than the best with your team's dryland program? SwimStrong Dryland is the answer you've been looking for. With world-class dryland programming for every age group, customized to fit your team's needs, nutritional coaching and education centered on the latest evidence-based research, leadership training and character development to promote an athlete-driven culture, sports psychology education and mental skills training, coaches' corners to promote collaboration, data-driven performance analysis, and an unrivaled family of athletes, coaches, and teams, fast swimming starts here. All right, very excited about this. Brian Cooler, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now listen, I had a, a great chat with uh, Tony Holler a couple of weeks ago, and um, he was just a, a revelation to me. And just I was kind of put on to him uh, a few months prior to that, and, and people were saying, you got to listen to this guy, and, and everything that he was touching on was just on point with a lot of the things that I had learned throughout my career as a professional athlete and then into my coaching realm and world where, where I had coached some of the top sprinters in history in swimming but um there's there's still just a huge misunderstanding in swimming of of sprint training of of power-based training of strength training things like that 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 apply to swimming and, and i think track and field and some other sports are way ahead and and obviously your name came up and he said you know brian's a guy that you got to talk to so thanks for doing this today absolutely yeah tony and i are good friends we uh we kind of met uh, ironically, and uh, I didn't even really know who he was. And he reached out to me because he had read an article uh, on one of the NFL guys that I work with. And he said, hey, are you are you following my system? And I was like, who are you? <laughs> I didn't even know who Tony was. <laughs> but we had similar philosophies in, you know, how to how to kind of go about training an athlete regardless of sport. And we just really hit it off and connected, you know, as friends and, you know, kind of colleagues. Uh, in mm -hmm. the industry, we have a lot of common thoughts, and um, yeah. yeah, Tony's a great guy. Yeah, I, I put up a clip where he was talking about you and and Christian McCaffrey. I put that up on Instagram. We've got over three million views right now, so it's uh, it's a popular topic, I'd imagine. <laughs> hey, we'll yeah. take those views, huh? Yeah, exactly. So, All listen, right. to, well, tell me tell me about your background, maybe with with Christian, maybe just some some background based sure. on what you've been doing for the past. 15, 20 years. Sure. Yeah, I was a longtime high school track and field and football coach. Uh, I did some uh, athletic directing and um, at a private school here in town called Ballard Christian, kind of helped build that athletic program. And we were fortunate to have a whole bunch of really good athletes come through the school. Uh, I'd always had a curiosity around athletic development, even from a young age. As a young coach, I was a head track coach at age 23. Um, and never really had anybody out ahead of me. So I just did a lot of my own research and I reached out to people that I respected and, you know, I knew did it better than I did guys, you know, like Tony Wells, you know, Charlie Francis, you know, Vince Anderson, all these sprint guys. Cause I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an elite sprint coach. And mm -hmm. so through all those years and then years of working in a weight room, um, you know, as a, as a day job with my, my teaching schedule, I just, you know, 
kind of looked, uh, experimented a lot, uh, took things that I saw and tried to put them into practice and threw out what I didn't like and kept what I liked and over probably 25 years formulated what I would call is our system. Um, and that's obviously a, an evolving, changing space all the time. But we have some things that we like a lot. Uh, I met uh, the McCaffrey family when I was young. Uh, Christian was just a seventh or eighth grader, I think, coming up. I coached his older brother um, in football. And then I obviously had Christian for four years in football and track there at Valor. Uh, he was a standout athlete, um, went off to Stanford. And uh, it was after his rookie year in the NFL, he reached out because he said, hey, you know, I've realized in the NFL speed is is the name of the game. I have to get faster. So will you, you know, take over my speed and strength work? And I, of course, was half terrified, you know, of like, <laughs> hey, this kid, you know, number eight draft pick. And, um, you know, I, I, I know I can do some good work for you, but I don't I've never really done that. And so we yeah. jumped in and uh, has a really good first couple of years, you know, led up to his 2019 season where he went thousand yards receiving thousand yards rushing um, just had only been done by two other players in the league. And so we just had a good flow. And what we were doing though, was very much kind of a, a blend of old school, you know, good Eastern European Russian training methodology of plyometrics and strength training and high speed sprinting. And I've just always been somebody that valued speed, um, maximum velocity mm -hmm. acceleration work for all athletes. And so, you know, with that success came the, the launch of our business. COVID actually put us into business, um, believe it or not. A lot of people got shut down. Uh, it was me and a few pro athletes training, and that grew into 150 kids training. And then we decided to start a business. And so we did that, yeah. and it, it went really well. Uh, people like our product. They like what we do. Um, it's fun. Uh, it's val You know, we validate it by testing, by taking information and data on the athletes that we work with. Um, and then we started to have other sports approach us. And one of them, you know, was was a swim organization, uh, which I didn't have a ton of confidence, you know, that, that we what we did was going to help them. We just had a hunch that it would. And after the first year, uh, that swim program broke 43 club records. <laughs> wow. And uh, so since and, and since has rebroke all of those records in addition to another 20 or so. Uh, and got their first uh, junior national qualifier. I mean, they have had all kinds of success. And the coach, who Jim Bocci, really good guy and, and knows what he's doing in the pool, is just kind of blown away at how the, you know, what we do from a training stance has impacted them in the in the water. So well, that's kind of think a, the major things are then the, that, um, you know, was it they come to you and or you come to them and, and you meet in the middle and you say, OK, well, this is what you used to be doing. This is what I want you to do in the future. And then, you know, all of a sudden they're breaking these records. They're doing, they're doing fantastic work. But what, what are primarily some of the things that they had to change fundamentally? Yeah, I think just the idea of, you know, probably the thing that Tony and I have in common and that, that other trainers and I have in common are, you know, doing a lot of work and, and getting tired and, and, you know, working to the point of exhaustion is, is kind of used to be a badge of honor. And yeah. we've just learned, we've learned enough to know that that's not necessarily the best way to train now. Fatigue actually, you know, creates a bunch of cortisol and it prevents us from performing at a high level. And if we don't get to perform at a high level, then we don't ever really know what that feels like. Uh, and the mm -hmm. central nervous system is very adaptable. And so we want it to, to be exposed to those kind of uh, stimulus. So it, it's kind of getting them out of the mentality of, hey, we got to do more and we got to do fitness 
cardiovascular, you know, type work, they get plenty of that in the pool. So our focus was to say, hey, let us really focus on the development of the central nervous system, fast twitch muscle fiber recruitment. And the single best way to do that is to sprint. Um, and so that's where our training system and programming goes in of, you know, we do take even swimmers or golfers or, you know, name the sport, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a running sport. Uh, and we feel like we can move the needle by having a, uh, you know, a speed development component that, that changes mm -hmm. how fast their body moves. And so, you know, mm -hmm. we improve somebody's speed on the track when they're running, then we know that they're going to be able to kick faster, pull faster, you know, all the things that happen in the water. And I'm not a proficient swim guy. We, we kind of look at our training system as sport agnostic. We're going to train mm -hmm. most athletes the same. Um, obviously there's little idiosyncrasies and, and variations between each sport. And we do a lot of stuff with shoulders and postural stuff with the swimmers, obviously. Um, but everything else is, you know, we kind of are training that energy system. So it's a little bit different approach of instead of trying to be so sport specific, we kind of move away and just stay specific to an energy system, which is that high performance, high output speed development. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you talk about energy systems because uh, in swimming, we're so caught up on energy systems. And and when primarily, you know, something someone created a, a famous um, you know, chart a few years back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, where it was kind of like a, a color system, you know, where it's like, if you're in, in this heart rate zone, you're this color, if you're in this heart rate zone and you, you know, the colors change as you go up. So everybody bases their training around this color system, but a lot of what uh, tr swim training primarily has been based around is being focused on threshold building, you know, and, and VO2 max type, type work. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's been, and that's been where the majority of the the program has been written up. So it's like a traditional swim program, you would say, would be eight to nine workouts a week traditionally, and you're swimming about five to six kilometers per workout, right? So you're you're looking at somewhere between forty to fifty kilometers per week, let's say, um, at a at a minimum type thing. So you know, in order to train for an event that lasts less than a minute these athletes are training 50 kilometers per week it just it it i think a lot of people are now questioning why are we doing this you know that's right that's right yeah and you know there there's a certain level of of energy system development that needs to happen and speed reserve um for longer distances and and even even in sprint events you know to have a little bit um, of that in there is okay uh we just know that because those, I guess, uh, philosophies exist out there, we just know that in our system, we're going to make sure that we really tilt the other way uh, and hit that central nervous system, you know, with high output because we know that they're not getting it in other places. And what we found is, I mean, even stacking those workouts together consistently, you know, two, three days a week, uh, four days a week, even of, of high level sprinting can create kind of an efficiency or a output that is so high that it almost creates a more fit or a more uh, in, in an endurance type of a, of a mm -hmm. environment because they're so proficient or so powerful in the water in on the ground. Um, and so it's just a little bit of looking at it differently. You know, we always say, do you want to get really good at running slow um, or moving slow, or do you want to be very efficient at moving fast and powerful? 
And, you know, not only is it more digestible to the athlete, which makes it fun, which makes training, you know, more uh, apt to be, you know, followed through on. Uh, it also, you know, scientifically makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. When you look at it from from a track sense, right? If you If you look at anyone that runs on the track and they run the 100 or the 200, they're running at, at full speed with beautiful technique. But a lot of people don't look at that in terms of swimming, you know, and, and if you're swimming a 50 or a hundred freestyle, for instance, the, the 50 is going to take you somewhere around 20, 21 seconds. Right. You know, the, the hundred is going to take you about 46, 47 seconds. So it's, it's, it's very similar to what they're doing kind of like on the 200 for the right. track or maybe a 400 on the track, but it's all less than a minute type stuff. So in terms of the specificity, there should be a lot of, speed building power building strength stability explosiveness you know that's right and and the endurance is built up around the the speed training i believe right so uh, that's that's one of the questions that comes up a lot is that how do you then periodize for speed because traditionally in swim programs they've said well, we've got we've got to build a base right the base is we're going to build around aerobic swimming and that's going to be the base that you're going to have to fall back on later once we start doing faster things right you'll have this huge base of work behind you so if we're going to flip that and say well we still need a base of of speed and strength how how then do you periodize for building speed and strength well this will this will probably make uh several coaches and or you know performance staffs cringe good i believe that there's not necessarily the need to periodize uh so much with speed and power um, because it, it's something, first of all, that takes years to develop. Uh, you know, I feel like the aerobic system is something that can be developed in a fairly short amount of time. Um, and, but speed and power and that central nervous system training can take years. And so the periodization of it really becomes like you said, the building blocks or the foundation has to be that you're doing those things consistently. And because you can't, you can't overload a speed day, let's say. Um, whether it's in the water or not in the water, it doesn't really matter. You can only put out at 98, 99, 100% so many times in a, in a workout. And so you have to, you know, stagger that with rest and recovery so that you're able to hit those high percentages and then stacking those things, you know, over the course of time becomes your periodization. So really, you know, it's hard to say, hey, we're going to start with a base of speed and we're going to just run slow for 10 repetitions today because now you're not really working speed. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you have to throw periodization out the window at some level and say, here's what we're going to do, um, you know, three, three days a week. Now with your swim workouts, if there's, you know, a, 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 somebody who swims the 500, then they, they need a little bit of an aerobic capacity, right? They need that speed reserve. Um, but we're still going to not necessarily change the way that we program for their speed development. They still have to hit a hundred percent. So we don't have a lot of room to go backwards. In fact, if something isn't done at 85, 90% or greater, we're probably not even working in the right energy system for what we're trying to accomplish. So, I mean, I'm not trying to get into the weeds on that necessarily, but it is, it is a little bit, I guess, counter, um, to what, like the, the culture of strength and conditioning would say of build a base, work up, start low, increase intensity, you know, as you go, 
we just we feel like you it takes a lot of practice and a lot of exposure to that to move the needle and so we're going to kind of go to the top of that pyramid and almost work backwards you know flip it upside down we're always going to run fast and give exposure to those things because it takes just years to develop wow it's fascinating. And um, listen, there's an athlete out there in, in the swimming world right now by the name of Cam McAvoy, which which kind of everybody's studying right now. And Cam just won the world championship. Uh, he's an Australian athlete, um, just won the world championship in the 50 freestyle. And he's basically removed all aerobic uh, activity from from what he's doing. So yep. he, he's doing exactly what you're talking about. He's, he's swimming at top speed um, a lot. He's building strength and power in the gym um, and explosiveness. And um, and he's stacking that on top of rest and recovery. So it's 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 really, really fascinating. Um, a lot of people will say, well, that will work for a very short race, like the like the 50 freestyle, where you're you're swimming for about 21 seconds, but it doesn't have the same effect for somebody that wants to swim a hundred, which would be more like the 400 on the track. Right. Can, can a 400 meter runner on the track train like this and be a, as effective as they want to be? I got, I got a great, I got a great story for you. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2019, uh, we had a four by four relay. So four by 400 meter relay uh, squad. We had one senior girl and three sophomores and a couple of them were multi-sport athletes, um, but mostly, I mean, we, we were all speed and power and rarely did we run over 150 meters in a practice, uh, in a workout. And so we, we definitely fell under that model of, we're gonna make you as fast and as efficient as possible. We're gonna stack some anaerobic work uh, to create a little bit of capacity. Um, we're gonna race kind of into shape um, and those girls set the state record in the four by four relay by almost six seconds. Mm. They ran 341. I think it was the number five time in the country that year. And um, again, these were all these were not, you know, high volume. It's the 400. So you have to run 500s and 600s, you know, kind of the old school mentality. Um, it was all based in speed and speed and power. So wow. I, the answer to your question is a definitive. Yes, you, you can get it done without the. Uh, aerobic thing it's it's wonderful to hear that there's a, a high level swimmer out there kind of you know messing around with normal what's normal and having success with it because we we definitely believe from our seat that um you know it's it's uh definitely possible yeah well n not only is he having success with it he's a world champion and right. his favorite right. favorite to win uh, the gold medal next next year in paris which is phenomenal oh. but he's getting i'm telling you he's getting a lot of pushback Right. A lot of people uh, are hoping that he doesn't succeed. You know, the ones on the outside that are snickering and the ones that are, are stuck on, this is the traditional way of doing things. They're right. like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then the other thing that they, they fall back on is that, well, he, he did years of base work as a teenager. So that's why he's able to now um, swim faster as an adult because of the years of base work. It's just like, that, that's sure. the argument they give. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, I mean, at some level, it's like, who's got the marker on the whiteboard last, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, you can try to figure out a whole bunch of different, you know, things that may or may not have had influence in that. I think, you know, one of the things that I've always loved about what Tony Holler likes to talk about is, you know, what kids, what, what kids enjoy, they, they love and they're good at. And so, you know, athletes are the same way. If they enjoy the training, 
and psychologically they're bought into what they're doing, then they're going to have success. Hmm. And I mean, I just, I was in Dallas yesterday with my VP of ops who trains our swim group here. And he was telling me how, I mean, our swimmers, don't get me wrong, they are not pretty sprinters. They, they don't run well. I mean, there's a reason why they're good in the water, not on land. Mm -hmm. But they have now gotten to a point where they actually enjoy it so much. They they are they request to, to run fly tens. They request to get tested. Uh, they've kind of gotten into the competitiveness of that. And so we're getting this really high output uh, in on the ground sprinting with a group of really elite level national caliber high school swimmers. Mm. It's been kind of an interesting um, experiment to see even the psychology around it of how they're bought into it. And, and, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know if that's a one for one when they hit the water. Um, but, you know, they're enjoying it. They're having success. And it's been a, a nice addition um, to what they're doing. I don't think they've stopped swimming laps and miles and, you know, all the things that, that come with, you know, traditional swim workouts. But the supplementation of it has been a, a, a big difference maker for them. Why do you think swimming is so far behind? Why do you, why do you think we're hanging on to this idea of the base and swimming miles and and work and just um, piling on top? Like to me, it still doesn't make sense why we yeah. swim eight to ten practices a week. Like yeah. I just don't understand why we do that, and I'm and I'm questioning it. And I've certainly gone against that grain and had success with it myself. Sure. But um, I just don't know why we're hanging on to that so much. Well, for the first thing, the first comment I would make is that I don't think you're alone. I really don't think swimming is probably any further behind in that mentality than soccer or football or lacrosse or you know any other major sport. Honestly, there's there's plenty of coaches out there that are stuck in that you know more is better. We have to outwork the competition mm. um, mentality, and I think it's it's often a lack of honestly, it's a lack of knowledge of what that mm -hmm. can do to the body. Um, I think oftentimes athletes actually have success even overcoming their training regimen, frankly. Um, you know, we think they have to do all these things and check all these boxes when really what we need to do is get an athlete to the start line, healthy, feeling fresh, you know, and ready to roll. And obviously they can't just not train, um, but there's definitely thresholds and levels that I think we sometimes far exceed. And, and we've learned a lot, you know, we've learned a lot in the last, uh, I'd say 20 years, 40 years, uh, but there's people coaching that have been coaching for 30 years and, you know, they're not very willing to change what they've done, what they did when they were a, an athlete. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing we fight when we talk and consult is by golly, this is what we've done. It's, it's done good for us. We don't want to make any major mm. changes, you know? Right. So that's probably more of what you run into is just, you know, this is what's been done in swimming. And then the good coaches stay in coaching. They influence younger coaches and so it's this kind of perpetual, um, you know, uh, historical mm. training methodology that's just passed down from generation to generation. Right. So, right. Yeah. We're trying to shift that now. We're, we're starting yeah. a revolution in sprinting and in swimming. So we're, we're shifting it. But um, right. I wrote down some things here that, uh, you know, some some things that just kind of come up a lot and questions that come up a lot. Um, so I want to throw some of these at you resistance training in the pool. Why, why would that be beneficial? You think? Um, you know, as far as like, well, any resistance training, what, you know, any training in general, you're looking for uh, to present a stimulus that causes adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you know, if you want strength in the, in the pool or on the ground to add a load to that movement is going to, you know, 
help generate additional muscle fiber and, and synapses that occur uh, to be able to do that work better when the load's not there. So right. it's just an overload principle, I think, that that makes sense. I haven't seen a lot of the, obviously, I watch I watch your stuff and um, I see I see some of that stuff. I don't know if I fully understand the one for one of a, you know, ground based uh, land based resistance versus a pool. But my, my, my guess would be that it's very much the same of just trying to find a, a, a adaptation to stimulus. Well, when Christian has a resistance pool of some sort on him and he is striking the ground, mm-hmm. what's he trying to do when he hits the ground and move that resistance forward? Like what, what's sure. the point of all of it in terms of technically and and the power that he's going to get from the, yep. the training of that you know yeah it's all it's all about really about force production okay. right we're trying to, to apply force in the right vector um you know really movement in general is physics and so force application in one direction creates movement in the other direction uh newton's newton's laws you know all come into effect and so you know what we try to do is we try to take an athlete and we we build them up through strength training, through sprint drills, through plyometrics, through all the different modalities of training to be able to generate more force. And, and that sometimes is where a lot of training groups or companies or whatever will stop is because, you know, for young kids, if you get them stronger, if you do plyometrics and stuff, they're going to have higher force output. They're going to get faster. They're going to move better. Um, we like to take it a step further and make sure that those then are applied to the ground appropriately you know, through proper mechanics and through proper, you know, where, where is the foot striking the ground? And Mm. and there's not necessarily a one for one on the swim piece because the movement is so much different. You know, at that point, we've kind of just really trained the central nervous system to move faster, whether they're flutter kicking or, you know, the swim stroke, you know, whatever it is should be done at a higher power rate. Uh, But as far as movement on the ground goes with a football player like Christian, um, we're really hyper focused on making sure there's no wasted movement, that there's not breaking forces applied. You know, we want things moving backwards to go fast forwards. Uh, and it's also a level of injury prevention. You know, the more times you strike out in front of your mass, the more lower leg problems and, and knee problems and things like that you're going to end up with. So for us, it really is that that twofold approach of let's create higher forces and then let's make sure that those forces are applied properly through the right vectors um, through efficiency. It's interesting because as you talk, and and I'm I'm putting my swim brain into this, yeah. I'm not picking up on anything that would be any different to swimming. Right? right? Like you talk about these things that are completely applicable to swimming. Right? Sure. Like you're we're, we're trying to generate a force and we're trying to move right water backwards and That's a body right. forwards. And, and we're trying to do that with efficient technique as well. Um, right. I mean, it, it all just makes sense to me. So like, is, if you're trying to run fast, there should be no real difference between trying to swim fast, right? It, the, the, sure. it all applies in the same respect. And so a lot of the things that you see on my Instagram with some of these guys in terms of the resistance that they're doing, they're doing it to, to create that. Um, power and that strength, but then yep. apply it to force so that it's efficient, you know? That's right. That's exactly right. And that's the thing, like when I, when I've spoke even at clinics and I say, Hey, we, we train swimmers and they get faster in the water by doing right. sprint training and everybody right. scratches their head. And I can see why even swim coaches will be like, I don't see how that helps us move the needle. 
you know, because they're they don't think there's a one for one. Uh, but what they don't realize and understand is like the energy system is all it's all encompass encompassing, you know, like how they come off the block, how hard and fast yeah. their hand comes through the water, how how right. powerfully they can kick. Yes. All those things can be enhanced by, you know, uh, stimulating the central nervous system, which, again, the only way to do that at the highest level is to sprint. So, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that it could be done in the water as well. You know, yeah, if, sure. I, if I was programming as a swim coach, which I'm not a swim coach, I would think that a 50 free guy would probably want to, you know, have lots of 15 to 20 meter maximum output. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe loaded, maybe contrasted, loaded, unloaded, right. where they're getting, you know, high, high outputs that yep. then stacked together, they're going to go out and crush a 50, you know, and, and we'll kind of yep. hang on a little bit at the end if we're not fit. Yep. Um, yeah. We individualize training in the pool, so why not individualize your nutrition? Erica Barney of Barney Wellness Building will help you and your swimmers get exactly what each athlete needs through genetic testing and personalized nutrition plans. So stop guessing what you should and shouldn't be putting into your body. Athletes within a few weeks have noticed they're recovering faster because they're fueling their body with what they need and staying away from what their body hates. Erica understands swimming. She gets it. She's worked with over 20 Olympians, including the fastest man in the world, Caleb Dressel. Group discounts are available. So go to Biney Wellness Building and get in touch with Erica today. That's Biney, B-E-I-N-E, wellnessbuilding.net. Hey guys, I've been trialing some revolutionary new swim tech and now you can get your hands on it too. This is EO Swim Better, a swimming evolution in the palm of your hands. Improve your technique with EO Swim Better. Analyze your stroke technique with EO's Swim Better handset. Go to eolab.com, use code BRETT at checkout and save 10%. How much uh, rest and recovery would you think you would need to have a high quality workout like that and then come back and do it again i think if you're talking really high quality you probably need about 48 hours 48 hours um you know for the because again it's it's more it's more neural you know it's it's central nervous system versus your muscles muscles are pretty you know pretty adaptable your lungs are even more adaptable right that's why you can go out and jog every day because it's at a very low output aerobic capacity there it's a low burn rate um but on the high burn rate you know activity of a 20 20 meter, you know, swim mm -hmm. uh, at the highest capacity for four or five reps, that's going to take, you're going to be tipped over from that. Not necessarily physically tired, but you might be neurally fatigued. And so we wouldn't want to repeat that for another, probably at least day and a half to two days. Um, mm -hmm. And I know swim is pretty, you know, classic of two a days, you know, swim in the morning, swim at night kind of stuff. And I think you could probably intermittently put in longer, slower swims. Right, right in between because i think mm -hmm. there i think there's still a level of energy system development that has to take place i'm certain of it um but like a pure sprinter you know the guy from australia probably you know i mean people are dumbfounded when i tell them that christian only really trains three days a week mm -hmm. we train monday wednesday friday for 90 minutes uh the off days are spent in recovery rest we actually get in a pool ironically you know in a, in a <laughs> for for his training on the off days and do a lot of mobility and spinal engine kind of work with him but uh yeah i think you have to space those really intense workouts out every other day right 
In terms of what he's doing kind of on the land and then what he's doing in the gym to build strength, right? Like moving weight, pushing weight, pulling weight, um, strength training, as opposed to speed training. How, how do you mix those together? How do they blend together? Is it is it speed training one day on the land and then the 24 hours later he's in the gym and then 24 hours later he's back on the land, you know, to give that 48 hours? Or is it is it only three times a week where it's combined? It's, we, we combine them three days a week. Uh, we basically have themed workouts on those days. You know, we, like might be an acceleration theme day. It might be a max velocity type day. Uh, might be a change of direction, kind of agility type day. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to do all those in one day and try to get all that work in. We're going to do movement first so that we're fresh and rested and able to move at that high, high output, followed by a, a weight training or a strength session. Mm -hmm. And Typically, the weight room or the strength uh, resistance work is going to is going to support whatever we did in movement, if that makes mm, sense. Right. So we're not a big, you know, upper body, lower body or, um, you know, uh, different pulls, push pull systems. It really is truly like what what moves did we do in acceleration that now need to be supported in the weight room? of a lunge movement or a trap bar deadlift or, you know, what what makes sense with those exercises to support those we feel like the weight room should look like sprinting or should look a little bit like and i don't mean one for one like it's got to look like running but it should support the things that we're trying to uh, enhance in in regards to whatever theme we're after max velocity acceleration etc so mm. we truly do space those out every other day and then the off days are spent in what i really call you know recovery workouts we still will maybe spend 45 to 60 minutes doing movement-based stuff, gymnastics, locomotion. Um, it might be a day we get in the water and do some you know, good movement uh, kind of stuff, uh, breathing, sauna treatments, you know, di different things like that to let the system fully recover and repair so that when we come back for the next one, it can also be a high output day. Now, how do you think uh, like an active recovery like that helps the system recover you know like why wouldn't you just completely do nothing as opposed to going in and doing some type of active recovery sure uh, i always say that's a game time decision day to day because i do believe there are some of those days where you should just not get off the couch uh, because you're fatigued you're tired uh, there's cortisol present stress hormones are high and and a day away would be very healthy and good for them so we often tuesday is typically a pretty big active recovery day for us uh, where I think it does cause blood flow and some stimulus mm. to try to, to accelerate the healing right. um, for that next day. But then oftentimes we get to a Thursday and we we may or may not do anything on that day based on how they're feeling, um, which again is another one of those periodization, I guess, flies in the face of periodization when you're sometimes just going to pivot and go off the plan because it's it's best that the athlete is rested and recovered. We're, we're typically going to substitute an off day for a day of work more often than not, just to make sure that, that they, they stay healthy. Yeah. Now, one of the other arguments I hear a lot too, and, and I don't know how much weight you put into this, but you know, you're talking about Christian McCaffrey, one of the top, you know, NFL players, professional athlete, man. Uh, I'm talking about Cam McAvoy, one of the top swimmers in the world is 29 years old. So they say, well, that, that's fine for those people, but sure. how sure. does it apply then to the youth? You know, when do you start strength training? When do you start speed training? When do you start um, all of the things that you're doing or some, some similarities with what Christian's doing? When do you start that? Sure. 
Well, I always, you know, obviously it's easy to work with Christian McCaffrey. I mean, not, not in certain regards, but you know, he's a very talented athlete. I, I deal with a lot of talented athletes that are easy to coach. Um, our system doesn't change from a youth athlete to a professional athlete. The volume and the loads and the frequency of which we do things changes a lot. Mm. Um, but we still do very similar type of stuff, just regressed for the younger athletes. And the answer is for sprinting. That's the beauty of having a speed based program is it's good for everybody. Um, it's, it's very low hanging fruit. Um, it's what they need to move the needle. And we're not talking about putting them in, in, you know, super overloaded weight training situations where potentially it could do more harm than good. Um, so we, we lay off some of those things and just make them proficient movers from a very young age. You know, we, we, we work down even with alpha kids age five to eight, just on good, basic human movement, uh, and then progress them into some speed work around age nine or 10. Um, and kids love to run. They love to sprint. They love to be timed. Um, and those are things that are all exposing them to that high performance without the risk of, you know, burnout or, you know, not everybody loves to lift weights, you know, to get under a, a back squat bar and squat. Um, so we try to make that very digestible for them. What about in terms of th this base building that we, you know, often hear about, let me fix this mic real quick. Um, this base building we often hear about, you know, for, for kids is like, you know, you build this aerobic base when they're younger. So you're talking about bringing speed in earlier. Um, so how then does that uh, move as or, or change as they mature and as they get older? What, what, what are the shifts from, you know, like a 10 year old to a, to an 18 year old? Sure. Um, you know what? Like it doesn't change much, <laughs> frankly. Um, now again, I, it, it's hard because I could probably spend a whole, what, two hours just breaking down the, the little idiosyncrasies of, you know, a 10 year old, you know, uh, training day versus a 25 year old training day. And obviously they would look very different. Um, but when it's, when it's based in this, uh, you just don't have to have as much attention to the, the, the what versus the, the, maybe the how, if that makes sense. So, you know, the what is still going to be, we're going to sprint. We're going to sprint a 10-year-old. We're going to sprint a 25-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, I just got done with a session today with a couple of pro soccer play, soccer girls, and they're back on their, their break. And their workout doesn't look a whole lot different than McCaffrey's workout or than, you know, a 12-year-old that's just getting started. Um, it's just, again, a matter of, like, the volume and are we going to spend more time in mechanics and efficiency before we head into kind of high, high output? The answer is yes, obviously. Um, but we, we kind of feel pretty good about, hey, everybody does this and they like it. Um, and it seems to be moving the needle for all age groups and all demographics. Yeah. It's interesting you say the proficiency. You know, we talk a, a lot about technique, you know, yeah. the swim technique. And I do a lot of clinics and I'm doing clinics all around the world now. And I travel the world and I and I see um, huge problems in technique and the way kids are swimming now if i emphasize the technique for five minutes the kids pick it up like that because they've been taught the right technique and they know the right technique but they're not constantly training the right technique so right. as soon as i put those cues in as soon as i put that awareness on it they pick up on it like that and right. their technique looks beautiful for a very short amount of time but then they go back to their programs and it's all based around volume and how much you can do in a certain amount of time. And so they they lose that technique again. So it just goes back to just pounding, pounding, pounding. And then and then they have, you know, 
issues with their shoulders specifically in swimming because they're just going through the motions of really poor technique constantly. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's why we spend, I mean, we have a, we have a series, we call it bounce fire series. Our swimmers do it. Our football players do it. Everybody does it. Uh, it, it, it generates, you know, thousands, if not millions of ground contacts over the years of, of, of doing it. Uh, it promotes the, the right way to ground strike and how to produce force and not lose uh, force production, you know, through the ground strike. And it, it's just something that we're very passionate about because we know that it, it, it moves the needle. Um, and, you know, to your point, if, if a kid's going to always go back to what they have done the most, then we want them to defer back to all the reps that they've taken in the efficiency, proficiency mm -hmm. movement piece. And so that's something that we work on a lot. You know, when you can only run maybe two or three fly tens in a session, you better have a whole bunch of other things that you're working on, you know? And so for us, that's kind of our call it volume of work that, that hopefully is going to set in some patterns for their life um, as an athlete. And, you know, I think that's what we've done well is that's just something it's, it's sometimes not very creative. It's boring sometimes, um, but we're a big like mastery uh, type of an environment where we want them to take one thing kind of an inch wide, a mile deep and get really good at it before we just start throwing all these different things at them. Cause to your point, you know, if somebody runs poorly, they got a chance to get injured. Um, you know, and that, that's the last thing you want is, you know, the best athletes, the available athlete. When would a kid go from learning uh, technique and speed and um, agility and, um, you know, kind of a stability? When, mm -hmm. when would they go from that to then going into the gym to build strength? Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to build strength from the jump. I mean, now we might not take a kid in the weight room and put them under a bar or have them lift a ton of weight. But as far as like just even their own body weight of, yep. you know, plyometric movements and isometric movements um, and then a gradual exposure to some overloading principles, uh, you know, just to have a kid do some pl basic plyometric movement is puts a pretty good load on the body, mm -hmm. but it's got very low risk uh, in regards to injury or joint problems or things like that. So right. I think it's just a it's a gradual exposure to that. Um, where, you know, at some point, yeah, we want our more experienced athletes, higher level, high school, collegiate professional athletes, you know, there's a need for exposure to some, some strength training, right? There's hormone benefits, there's, you know, bone density and, and all the things that they get out of, uh, uh, the weight room. But, you know, for a young kid, I mean, we might do something with a medicine ball or, you know, lunging or body weight kind of stuff, exposing them to strength levels that can that can be very significant for them in their athletic development that doesn't necessarily have to put them in the gym right um what, what's the difference because these two words are often grouped together um speed and power what, what's the difference primary difference between building speed and building power uh power is just speed and strength combined so really you, you, speed is a component of both of those things right i mean pure speed is speed but power is actually strength and speed combined so it's you know, how how fast can you move you know uh, a, a load you, you know that load could be you your body, so power training to me is much more important than strength training. Um, we don't ever really chase big numbers in the weight room. We'd much rather see you move weight fast, um, and be able to be reactive and explosive in movement. Um, and I do think that that's another arm of because we train that way, it supports the speed which then in turn supports whatever movement, whatever athlete is doing. 
um, and bringing it all, tying it all back to swim, you know, that's, that's when those kids get really good at being powerful in the water. So traditionally in the gym, you know, you go in there and you do 12 reps of something. You're not, you're not going in there as much to, to do that type of rep range. No, we, we, we rarely go beyond seven repetitions in anything we do. Right. So we kind of feel like one to three repetitions is really our power range of reps. Uh, four to seven reps is kind of our strength range. And then anything eight and above is really more hypertrophy in nature. And there's not many athletes that need hypertrophy work, uh, especially at the younger ages. Uh, we're going to let kind of the natural course of the body growing, you know, do that for them. Some sports like football or rugby or contact sports, there's going to be a certain amount of muscle mass that's needed. Um, but, you know, as an example with swimmers, we, we certainly don't want to put a bunch of extra mass on them to pull through the water. So we want them to be as strong and powerful as possible with as little amount of body weight, um, you know, add as we can. So that takes a certain programming to keep them from tearing down muscle fiber and having it regenerate and grow and, you know, put put weight on on the scale. Yeah. Right. So that, that's another approach that we have. Uh, uh, we call it mass specific force, um, which is basically just that. I mean, how how much output do you have per your body weight? And so for every pound or two or three or four of body weight that you put on, you have to have exponential strength to move that weight at the same rate. So we try to limit the, the amount of uh, um, hypertrophy work that we do. So, yeah, a set of 12 for us may only happen if it's a maybe a med ball throw or something fairly light where a higher rep range is needed. But as mm. far as moving weight, we're going to live in that probably three to seven rep range most of the time. Oh, good. That's a good answer. I like that. I appreciate that. Um, that, that, that clears up a lot for people too. Um, in terms of warming up, what, what's the, what's the idea behind warming up and what are you trying to do when you warm up and maybe even some specific exercises that, that get, gets the body warmed up? Sure. Yeah, I mean, for I, I think really it's blood flow, it's it's preparation, you know, a little bit of potentiation for what you're doing that day. Uh, I think sometimes there's a lot of wasted uh, energy or wasted output in a warm up. Mm. Um, you know, the body obviously needs to be ready for whatever's next, and that's why the potentiation piece is important. And it kind of depends on what you're doing that day. So for us, it's always going to be a build up to whatever the high end output is going to be that day. So if it's a if it's a fly 10 day, then we have to work up to be ready to sprint, you know, fast that day. We're going to start by moving a little bit slower with a, with a little locomotion so that we're hitting kind of a triplanar movement, you know, all three sagittal, frontal and transverse planes. We're going to just move around a lot and, and get some mobility and activation. And, you know, even even in some of our warm up drilling, we'll do some mobility um and uh stability movements so there might be some isometric movements and stuff in there to tighten things back up uh before we sprint you know we don't want to be hyper mobile um and again sport dependent you know different sports require different levels of movement uh but for all athletes we're going to focus on those triplanar deals so we have a kind of one of our staples in our facility is we do a locomotion series that has three levels to it uh the first level being just basic jog skip um, galloping, um, you know, kind of movements, but we are hitting all those three, those three, uh, planes of movement. And then that can progress into a uh, second and third level, which are very challenging. Um, there's a coordinative, uh, component to it. Um, running fast and moving fast takes coordination. So we feel like challenging that system in the warmup is a really good place to put that in. And, um, we usually follow that up with, uh, pardon me, I got a 
on call, but okay. Um, with with like some SFT, the sagittal frontal transverse plane movements of squatting, hip drivers, push-ups, things like that, where again, we're just getting the body moving and prepared for what's next in, in the movement that we're going to do that day. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, had another question there in terms of taper, right? So taper is a big thing in swimming and I'm sure you experienced some of that in track and field where you go to the biggest meet of the year, you want to be at your fastest. So in terms of, um, you know, what they're doing uh, for strength and power and explosiveness in the gym um, and then going onto the track and trying to run as fast as you can, how much of that is tapered off and when, when would you do your kind of last workout and, and how beneficial is it to kind of activation in the gym before you run really fast? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, I mean, obviously there's a general like unloading of the total volume as you right. head into a big competition. I think that's fairly standard and um, you know, but there also you have to take into consideration the central nervous system has the fast twitch uh, ATP has about a three to eight day window uh, where it'll start to kind of detrain or, or, or level off. And so you want to stimulate that, you know, every about three to eight days. And so a lot of people, I think sometimes they will taper too soon, mm. uh, which then kind of puts things offline by the time they go to a big competition. Right. So now, you know, what, what, what stimulates the central nervous system? Well, a good healthy warm-up and and one or two repetitions at a really high level can be enough to spark that system to keep it on deck. And so, you know, for us, it might be four or five days away from a championship track meet. Mm -hmm. We're gonna still run maybe a you know a fly 80 uh, meters at full speed. Um, full recovery, maybe one or two repetitions. Again, just keep that that nervous system firing and ready for that competition, so that it doesn't get too relaxed or too away from um, you know the exposure. And so, but but generally, it's going to just get less and less and less as you taper, as, as probably most coaches would naturally do, uh, without neglecting um, still hitting a high output within that window of about three to eight days before competition. Right. Um, I see this word advanced technologies uh, being used. Sorry, my microphone's playing up again. Um, being used in the, in this day and age, are there any advanced technologies that, that you guys use to help you with your performance? Yeah, we, you know, we got a, we got a partner in Hawken Dynamics. So we use force plate um, uh, monitoring for a lot of our athletes in, in all of our facilities now. Um, in regards to just, you know, seeing where an athlete is on a day-to-day -day basis, not only from a, from a readiness state, but also like, are they, are they asymmetrical? Are they, is their output high or is it low? Are they fatigued from the day before? And, you know, those are the advanced technologies that we didn't used to have. It was more of a coach's eye of, boy, the team right. looks flat today, you know, and, mm. um, and that's, we all can see it, but now what we can do is actually put data to it. Um, so between, you know, the force plates and some of our techno gym technology that we have in our skill mill treadmills and our and our skill run treadmill, you know, we can put an athlete on there and get these outputs and really kind of see like, hey, you know, Susie's watts are really down today. She must be tired and fatigued. Let's modify her workout today. Hmm. So we actually use quite a bit of technology, especially in the movement stuff. Um, to be able to monitor these guys and optimize their training by sometimes backing off what we're doing, you know, or how, how do you feel about like a whoop technology, something like a wearable technology. 
Yeah, I, I think they're great for some people. Um, I'm a guy that can't wear a whoop because I would absolutely obsess over those numbers and every day. And my my running joke is whether my readiness score is good or bad, I got to go anyway. So I don't really yeah. want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same way a, a little bit about that too. It's like I I put it on. And I'm like, well, it's telling me I'm not really ready, but I got to be ready. You know? I got to be ready. That's right. But I think for an athlete, that's probably a pretty good way to monitor and see kind of where they're at. I think it's an aha moment for a lot of athletes when they see, man, I really am not ready. And I do kind of have to go do this. But, you know, who's who's then monitoring that with them? You know, if if I say, hey, I'm 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 not ready today based on my score. I'm low. I'm low on sleep. Is there going to be a coach that's going to be willing to give that kid a day off or a reduced mm -hmm. workout to get them back in the green? um is kind of you know that's going to take a cutting edge coach somebody that's very trusting of the fact that the biggest probably the biggest indicator is going to be readiness you know is that kid fresh healthy and ready to go yeah I, I feel the same way in terms of just i think it's a good education piece look i think i think athletes should understand nutrition as much as they possibly can doesn't mean you have to be a nutritionist but understanding right. that understanding your, your heart, you know, like understanding what your pulse is doing. I think just having an awareness of, of your body and right. really understanding what the signals are and what it's telling you and, and, and figuring out at that point to say, well, yeah, today, like it's telling me I really can't go, or it's just kind of giving me advice to say, you know, you're not in great shape, but you got to get out there and do it anyway, kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. 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 That, that's exactly right. I mean, we, you know, what you don't want is an athlete to be like, paralyzed by the all right. the data and all the anal, you know anal, right. analytics so we don't do you know we don't dive too deep into it but we have ways for an athlete to come in and in 10 seconds take three counter movement jumps and we kind of know where they're at and that may that may tailor their workout 10 or 15 percent we're still going to work out but it might give us better you know idea of when to push when to pull um you know on on the on the total load do you get to a point with a guy like Christian McCaffrey where you've you've maxed out, or are you always looking for something better, some to get him stronger, faster, explosive? Like, is there can you get better with a guy like that? Sure, I think the answer is yes, you can. I mean, I think how much you can move the needle is is you know reaching the ceiling, right? Your ceiling's a little bit higher that you're working with, and um, I, I'm always looking stuff that we can do to do to be better uh for him i think a lot of it at, a, at an elite level athlete like that and some of the others that i'm fortunate to work with it becomes more about the individual needs and you know a lot of them are bumped up and bruised up and they've they've dealt with injury and whatnot and so a lot of your training looks a little bit more like therapy um where you're really trying to get their bodies back to normal kind of homeostasis leading into the season and yes we're going to still touch for the same reason that your nervous system starts to deteriorate after three to eight sessions or three to eight days, we still need to, to add that to their regiment. They still need to, you know, in season, hit a little bit of strength exposure, hit a little bit of speed exposure. They can't just put it on the shelf and do nothing because they've reached a certain level um, or they will start to fall off. So um, I think then it just becomes much more of a like finite, you're tuning a Lamborghini, you know, you're not building a Chevy truck, you know, if that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Actually, I just thought of something else, a really good question that I wanted to ask you, because we get this a lot too, is like specialization in kids and when's too early, but more, more so around the identification of 
who's a sprinter and who's not, right? Like I think a lot of swim coaches say, well, it's it's too early to determine whether they're a sprinter or not until, you know, they're 17, 18. And, and I disagree with that. I think a lot of sprinters are getting um, killed in the pool because we're not identifying young enough um, yeah. and we're kind of putting them in these programs where it's just like one size fits all. So how would how do you and how would you recommend we go about identifying talent in speed? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's some real validity to testing, you know, and, and recording, taking accurate data on what these athletes do when they come in. Mm. I know what we would do on a, from a track and field perspective of, you know, a lot of data testing up front to see what's your vertical jump, what's your force output, what's your fly 10, you know, how do you accelerate? What's your max velocities look like? Mm. And we can kind of talent identify that athlete into a certain event group, you know, whether it's a sprinter or a jumper, a hurdler. Um, mm. And we had done that for years. USA Track and Field has actually a full formula of, of things to put in on data and testing to kind of, you know, try to identify talent. In the mm. water, I would think you could do almost the same kind of a thing, you know, yeah, run some. Why not? Yeah, run some different testing type of stuff. And if a kid has a propensity, even in regular performance training, you know, we test all of our swimmers here for vertical jump, for fly tens. And I would guess, uh, I have a hunch that the sprinters that are good sprinters are probably testing higher than some of the ones that aren't. And so it would lend, lend itself to say, you should probably be doing some of that kind of testing. And that might help you push kids into one or the other. Yeah. I tell this story. I, I had a, a trip to South Africa recently and I had this, uh, I did this clinic and there was about 40 kids in the clinic and um, had this kid at the back of the lane and he just kind of wasn't paying attention. He was just playing around and we were going through drills and skills and it was kind of mundane, a little bit boring, but stuff that they needed to know and understand. And um, so we did this for about an hour and a half and this kid was just kind of playing around, playing around, wasn't paying attention, wasn't listening. And then at the end we said, okay, well, let's get up on the blocks and we'll, we'll go fast. And he immediately got to the front of the block and went up first and just smoked everybody. And, and, and uh, you know, the South African coaches at the end were like, how do you identify a sprinter? I'm like, I don't know, but I know that guy's a sprinter. That's right. That's right. One. That's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess you got to kind of see, right. And, and put them in there. And I mean, I was a guy that is a track athlete. I, I love the speed power events, but anything over the 400 meters, I was terrified of. I didn't love that, you know, and it wouldn't right. have taken very long of a couple tests to figure that out, you know, pretty quickly to identify where, you know, I might have fit in. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, man, I've taken an hour of your time. I appreciate it. It's been cool. I think we could talk for hours. And uh, where, where can people find you and more of you? Sure. Yeah. No, we got a, we, our website is uh, kulasp.com. Um, and we got some information on there. If anybody, you know, wants anything, our Instagram is at Kula sports performance. Uh, I also have a personal page of, uh, at Brian Kula, uh, Brian with an I and, uh, yeah, I love talking shop. I love connecting with people and, um, if there's anything we can do to help out there, we'd love to, we have a, uh, our new KSP global, uh, coaching digital platform where we can do some remote training for athletes across the globe. So if there's some people out there that aren't getting the help that they want, reach out and we could probably get you and or your club helped out. Appreciate it, Brian. Thanks for your time, mate. It's been awesome. It's just uh, continuing the conversation for us and it's very much needed in swimming. So thanks a lot. I love it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Brett. All right. Take care, man.